Welcome to the Freaking Geeks Podcast, the flagship podcast of Freaking Geeks Media. In this podcast, hosts Michael, Sarah, and Barry crank the geekiness to 11, covering everything from movies and television to pop culture, video games, books, and so much more. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. The podcast is produced each week, so feel free to add us to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. The links will be in the show notes. Okay, now it's time to start the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Jacob, in this episode. Hello. All right, Jacob. So uh, this was your pick for uh, our, our episodes that we record, and you decided to do Howl's Moving Castle. So can you tell me why you decided that this was the movie you wanted to watch? Um, well, uh, both me and my wife are very big fans of Studio Ghibli movies, and uh, Howl's Moving Castle has kind of become one of our favorites just because of a few different factors that we'll pro- we'll get into when we discuss it further. But just he, for being as prevalent as he is in Disney with, I know a lot of people have seen some of his work in some capacity. I know like probably his most mainstream movie in the past 10 years is probably well, about 15 to 10 years, uh, is Ponyo. I know a lot of people have, will recognize that, mm-hmm. uh, movie of his, even if they don't, but they don't know his other works. Um, so yeah, it's just become one of our favorites and just a good movie to a very unique movie of his even as well. So, right. Yeah. I mean, I've seen um I've seen a good chunk of Miyazaki's work over the years. I, I'm not gonna sit and pretend like I've seen it all because I haven't. But There's just so much. Yeah, well he's he's well, think about it, he's been doing this since I believe the early to mid eighties. Um, yeah. So it's it's been a while, you know. Um So yeah, I mean I've seen obviously if you look at his uh you know, his uh, filmography um, there's the the big ones, the highlights, of course, Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke, Kiki's Delivery Service, uh, Ponyo, like you said. Um, yeah. But basically, just about every one of his movies is amazing. Um, I think there's even even ones that you would consider, you know, that maybe his weakest are still, you know, better than many of the animated movies that uh, exist. You know. Oh yeah. Um. So anyway, let's uh, let's get down to to business here and let's talk about uh, House Moving Castle. So for the rundown here, we have the release date is June seventeenth, two thousand and five. Of course, written and directed by uh, Hayao Miyazaki. A runtime of exactly two hours. A budget of twenty four million dollars. The box office of four point seven million uh, domestic. Two hundred and thirty point four million foreign, which uh, just tells you how popular his movies are all over the world, and uh, a global take of two hundred thirty five point one million. 
So that's pretty fantastic. When you look at a budget like that of, you know, 24, 25 million to have that kind of return, I mean, it's it's no wonder basically he's just given a blank check, hey, do what you got to do and we'll make money on this thing, you know. Um, and I say that not because I feel like he cares about how much money his movies make, but just that if he wants to make a movie, they're just going to say, make your movie. It doesn't matter what the cost is because we know it's going to, you know, exceed its cost and, and make a profit. So there's no uh, pause or second guessing on whether or not to give him the money to make whatever movie he wants to make. So uh, that's great. Uh, great for us. Great for the <laughs> for everybody in the world because they get to watch his movies. Um the cast here is, uh, for the English version, is Christian Bale, Billy Crystal, uh, Blith Di- uh, Danner, uh, Emily Mortimer, Jenna Malone, and Josh Hutcherson, excuse me, as well as uh, the legendary actress Lauren Bacall. So, uh, yeah, let's get down to the, uh, the plot synopsis, which is that uh, when an unconfident young woman is cursed with an old body by a spiteful witch, her only chance of breaking the spell lies with the self-indulgent yet insecure young wizard and his companions in his legged walking castle. So, Jacob, why don't you give me your one-sentence review for Howl's Moving Castle? All right. Howl's uh, Moving Castle is a visually stunning work of animation that manages to tell a great story with important themes and mores without being condescending or heavy-handed in its... Uh, plot. Okay. Um, mine is uh, a mix of beautiful animation, lighthearted comedy, strong characters, and a heartfelt story. How's Moving Castle is yet another gem from Miyazaki. So uh, let's jump into it. Let's start out with our uh, our thoughts about uh, the script. Let's start out talking about the story here. Um. Right, so this story is, it's something that, um, there's elements that are definitely Miyazaki, stuff that we see repeatedly in a lot of his movies, right? He's, um, somebody who likes, uh, coming of age kind of stories. Uh, oftentimes the, the protagonists in his stories are women, uh, young girls who are, you know, trying to, to grow up or they have to learn some, you know, harsh lessons about themselves and to become stronger for it. Um, and this one is no different, right? Because we have, we have actually two characters, two main, the two main characters in this story, which are Sophie and Hal. Um, I would say, and, and tell me if you agree, uh, they're basically two sides of the same coin, right? They're two characters who share a lot in common especially when it comes to being uh, unconfident in themselves. So, you know, Sophie is uh, someone who kind of, uh, I think you could say, uh, hides from life in her hat shop. You know, she's, what, 18 years old or so. And she's so afraid that she'll become this old spinster that it's like she kind of lacks the confidence to actually live a full life and try to put herself out there. Whereas Hal is uh, this, this wizard. He's, he's got immense power. And uh, despite having all these abilities, 
and you know the the capability of really doing what he wants he simply doesn't have the confidence in himself and we see that repeatedly in the movie through uh, breakdowns especially this one scene later like midway through the movie where he kind of just completely goes mental and breaks down and, and basically wants to die and he's be- he's being a baby he's um <laughs> you know he's just uh you know throwing a fit throwing a tantrum you know and it's uh so it's it's while they don't do the same thing necessarily there's be- definitely i think elements to their characters which are are very similar uh yeah i i would agree like they both have a lot of development and growing that they each need to do and uh just learn who they both truly are because they both hide behind a facade in so many ways and that tantrum cracks me up every time oh because it's so over the top you know yeah (laughs) i mean that's the thing it's just it's way over the top and he um like oh my hair died you know, red and, and, and life isn't worth living now. And it's, uh, if I'm not beautiful, I'm worth nothing. And it's, um, it's such a, a weird reflection because you have so Sophie, who is this, you know, young, you know, pretty girl and everything, but you know, she's a, she's an old woman. So we're, you know, if we're talking about people who should be legitimately throwing a tantrum in this movie uh, about how they look, it's, it's Sophie. Because she's the one that has to wake up every day and be this, you know, this in this body of an old woman, woman, essentially herself in, you know, 60 or 70 years. This is what she's going to look like. And, you know, she's not the one throwing a tantrum. Uh, It's actually, it's actually Hal, you know, despite the fact that, you know, he's a powerful wizard and he's young and he's got, yeah, he's got problems and he's got, you know, obviously he does. But at the same time, it's like he lacks the ability to cope with being an adult basically you know despite all that power so yeah absolutely let's uh let's take a a brief look at what this the kind of the layout of this story what's what's really happening so describe for me more or less the events that play out in house moving castle in terms of this the plot and uh more or less what happens throughout the from the beginning to the end of the movie all right. Uh, so Sophie, uh, leaving the hat shop, uh, relatively late in the day, gets stopped by some of the guards, the um, sol- or soldiers, because of, it's a Miyazaki film. There's war going on. Um, <clears throat> he has that a lot in his movies. Um, she gets stopped by them. They're trying to flirt with her, hit on her, definitely being very inappropriate and how stops them and saves her and lets her get away from them, but also uses her to help escape the minions of the witch of the waste. And thus when she finally goes home, she puts her curse on her and thus leads her on an adventure to try and get it fixed. Initially trying to hunt down the witch of the waste, uh, stumbles across Hal's moving castle uh, sneaks into it and poses as a, an elderly cleaning lady <laughs> ah, yes. um, uh, helps Markle with some of his stuff along the way and cleaning and whatnot. Um, and along the way, realizing how many problems Hal has and 
uh, as Hal gets called upon by the king and his once uh, 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 once upon a time master uh, realizing that it's obviously a trap uh, the witch of the waste also happens to be called upon as well and they it's a series of stumbling through the encounters and situations trying to stop the war that is going on despite being asked to participate in it Hal is helping in that sense and Sophie is realizing as time goes on that she is in love with him and gradually as she gets more confidence in herself you see her kind of regain her normal self and finally when she realizes what happened to him in the past she can help solve him or solve his problem and thus ends up breaking her own curse after being completely attacked by uh solomon uh madam solomon howl's master at one time that has been manipulating the war from behind the scenes mm-hmm. and as uh <clears throat> as she is not willing to let Hal go, she bombards and attacks and sends everything out that she has to uh, stop him. Uh, things happen. Uh, the castle falls apart because uh, Calcifer, the fire demon, um, <clears throat> is put upon too much stress and has to also be set free. Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I think that it's it's really an interesting uh, movie, and like we see with Miyazaki's uh, films, nature and spirits, uh, they're very much enmeshed in the world of the characters. Right? It's it's not like they're um, totally freaked out when they see kind of weird spirits and different things and creatures because it just happens to be part of their life, at least to the extent that they know these things exist. Um, they're not like totally freaked out and screaming and running for the hills. Um, so it's actually pretty, you know, interesting when you, when you see that kind of thing throughout his work. Um, what I think really works, there's things that I feel like there's things I feel like work in maybe don't work as much in this movie as I would say some of his other movies. Um, I you know everyone has their favorite Miyazaki movie, but this is a, definitely a very very good one. I think my complaints when it comes to the script is um, well let me let me just first say my my what I think is really works. I think a there's that Miyazaki hum- humor that you see in all of his movies, right? It's uh, even though you might have like a, a coming of age story, there might be adult themes, well, not adult themes, but themes that would appeal to an adult, like characters trying to grow up and, and trying to find out who they are and gain confidence and all this, all these things. Uh, Miyazaki always makes room for humor in 
his movies. And I think, as always, the humor really works here. Uh, he knows when to pull that humor out to kind of, you know, le- um, leaving up some of those darker moments. But there's a lot of depth in this movie with the characters, as we said before, with Hal and Sophie. They're very much two people that are both learning to become the grown-ups that they need to be. Uh, they need to gain the confidence. They need to um, stop throwing tantrums. Stop stop being idiots. You know, especially Hal. You know, he's somebody that really shouldn't be the one throwing you know tantrums and and being angry all the time because of stupid little things that just seem to derail his day more or less um it's a relatable moving story i think for these characters um but the cons for me the plot i think can feel a bit murky at times all right because you spend a lot of time with sophie and with how but I remember even the first time I watched it, I thought, what are, what are, like, what's the plot here? I'm, I'm starting to lose the thread as to exactly what's going on. Like, who is really after them and why? At first, I thought, okay, it's the Witch of the Waste, right? And I thought, I assumed she was going to be the big bad person in this, in this story, the villain mm-hmm. that, uh, Hal has to overcome. Now, the story, subverts that notion by actually making her a part of the group. Now, we've seen this before, okay? We've seen this in a lot of Miyazaki films, so it's not completely unprecedented. But um, when that kind of fell to the wayside, I thought, uh, I get who the villain is now, right? I, I understand mm-hmm. who's kind of pulling the strings. But at the same time, it's such a long period uh, of time in the movie until you actually find that out. I mean, we're talking, we're at like the three, like roughly the three quarter mark of the movie, somewhere between the two third to three quarter mark when we actually find out who the villain is. And we, we spend so little time with her that it didn't maybe feel like she was as strong as she could have been. Now, I also understand that the biggest obstacles in this story aren't really the villains, but the the characters growing and changing. But I didn't quite feel like it got there. Now, the other thing that I had a problem with is that I felt like the run or the running, the ending was rushed, um, because everything kind of just went from everything's okay, more or less, to everything goes to hell, and it's all wrapped up very, very quickly um, in the manner of about 10 minutes or so. Uh, So in a two-hour movie, the last 10 minutes basically wrap up what I feel like was a movie that should have been about two hours and 15 minutes, personally. I almost felt like they cut the movie down because they wanted to get it down to about two hours. But in doing so, um, I felt like it kind of rushed the end. It It didn't feel like it got there as naturally as I would have liked myself. Yeah. But that being said, I felt like it is a it's a very strong script, despite you know some issues that I do have. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Do you do you have any of the same thoughts, or were you completely fine with all that? Um, I I, I agree uh, in the sense of like the 
the subverting of who the antagonist is in the sense of it goes from the witch of the waste to Madame Solomon. But I kind of like how you alluded to a little bit as well is not as much of because of the fact that it's not meant to be a movie about them up against Madame Solomon as much as them dealing with their own self demons. And like, that's one of the great things that Calcifer kind of represents. And like, they act and like there's a actual fire demon to represent Hal's demons. It, it's the, I, I feel like it's more of a character piece in their own development. That's the biggest plot point for it so it's not as much like yeah she's there and she's kind of sending off all this stuff and causing the war but that's not meant to be the focus point of who they're up against it's meant to be them learning of themselves and i i feel like they did a really good job of showing her learning who he really is and meeting solomon and having her there was meant to help continue to drive that and learning that how learned from her he was her apprentice at one point and kind of understanding who calcifer was in that sense um with with the ending i i will wholeheartedly agree that it could have been a little bit longer i would have liked to see some more development of uh how things were wrapping up i would have loved to see some more of that but I don't know. It's also kind of one of those things as well that when realizing she kind of didn't really get an answer as to how she was able to go into the past or some memory of how mm-hmm. like, yeah, there was a doorway, but we don't know whose magic caused that. Was it how was it calcifer? What? very murky (laughs) yeah like it it, it was very murky and very confusing as to that but that's kind of the i think one of the great things about this is it's not meant to be understood and that's magic for you is it's not always going to be logical it's not always going to be known it and being the fact that it's probably not meant to be uh, i mean if it was how doing it. It looked like the reason why it didn't last as long and could be logic out that because he was fading, it didn't, it couldn't last longer. So we couldn't get like more development into who he was as a boy and that memory and stuff like that. Um, I, I will say I, the turnip head thing for sure could have been kind of expanded upon a little bit more other than yeah. finding out that the witch of the waste turned him into that as well. Like that whole little shtick, but, but yeah, it, there were some parts that could have been extended, but overall very great script. Yeah. Um, you're right with the not understanding how she got into his memory and why, um, turnip head, yeah, I was I remember the first time I watched it, I, I was really excited because I wanted to find out what the deal was. And like it really took me a moment at the end to remember that we had any any 
idea that the the prince was missing. You know, like it was such a a throwaway aspect of the script, a throwaway line that I was like, wait, oh, oh yeah, that's right, that's right. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, it it doesn't. It doesn't feel like it was given an enough weight in the story. And, you know, whereas other Miyazaki movies, I felt like the love story was done well, or or just the character's relationship, even if it's just like a friendship. Um, I don't know if I... I don't know if I... White bought as much of their love story as I think I would have liked, I, I mm. guess. Because so much of the of the script is dedicated to seeing these characters, who they are, what their their faults are, what their demons are. That by the time Sullivan says, Oh, you're in love with Hal. Um, to the point where Sophie has to finally acknowledge that. It wasn't so much that I didn't feel like maybe she was in love with with Hal, but I I guess more like from his end. I wasn't sure I don't know. I, I just for me personally, I just was like, uh, I just I didn't I needed a couple of scenes to really show that Hal had, you know, very specific feelings for her. Before we got to the to the back end of the movie, till you know we got to the rushed ending, to yeah. where now it's it's supposed to be something that we feel, you know, kind of like how in Beauty and the Beast, right? So if you go and you watch Beauty and the Beast, the the animated movie, by the way, mm-hmm. um, you get a good sense of how the relationship changes, where it's kind of adversarial, right, early on, to a, a you know thawing of you know their relationship until you get to a point where bell has to acknowledge you know that these feelings exist and the same for him and i don't know that i really felt like that was achieved as much as i would have liked which is kind of sad because given how i would almost argue to a certain extent the plot doesn't matter as much in this movie and that you know the villain isn't really as big of an issue to deal with as it is with the issues that the characters are dealing with themselves i felt like there was a lot of room there for them to really kind of build this relationship up in such a way to where when it comes to the end it's like yeah okay this is like i can believe that both of these characters in love are in love with each other um, and I don't know, maybe just what, for me, it wasn't working as much as I would have liked, but, uh, what about you? Did you buy the relationship? Did you buy, you know, the love story? Um, I did, uh, mostly because of the, like, for, you've absolutely got from her end and I can kind of see where you're coming from. Like you didn't really see much from him, mm-hmm. but I think that's where it comes into play. Like with the whole fact that he didn't have his heart. It wasn't as much of a, like, he didn't have those feelings. It's more of the calcifer was his heart. Like, 
it, it's kind of hard for somebody to really express that and show those emotions and show the, that love when their heart is a fire demon named calcifer. <laughs> right, <laughs> so like, I think that's why it kind of makes it hard. Like it's, it wasn't as outright with his emotions towards her. And like, he was always kind of cold and distant and whatnot, but like, uh, there was a lot of scenes with like calcifer and him being really affectionate towards her and whatnot. Even when she's, being kind of mean to him and whatnot when she says she likes his spark and he gets excited. Um, I don't know. I think with that and like the realization of his representation of heart being Calcifer and how Calcifer reacts to her kind of helps show and bridge that gap for me because when he gets his heart back, I feel like those he's, gets those emotions they were depicted by calcifer in those scenes. Okay. Um, yeah. And I, and I like the witch of the waste. Um, we talked, I'd mentioned earlier about the subversion of what we assumed was going to be the big villain. So, you know, she comes into the shop and, and she's, a. I don't know. I, she's a bigger woman, but she's, she's also, there's like a, a prettiness, right? She's pretty. I guess, uh, youthful. Um, and my favorite scene, by the way, of the entire movie is the scene where both Sophie and the witch have to climb the steps. Great scene. So <laughs> hilarious. She first passes Sophie in a carriage and, you know, she's youthful and pretty and everything in the carriage and arrogant and all of that. Uh, and then they get to the point where, Magic stops, you know, at this point uh, near the palace. So they both get out and they have to walk up. And despite the fact that Sophie has to walk back down and get the dog and carry it up, she passes the Witch of the Waste. And, uh, you know, and the witch just like, it, it, it gets more and more disgusting, you know, like she's uh, obese and you can, the, the, the sweat and the sounds and, and those are all fantastic. And well done, and she's cursing Sophie. But then I think one of the fun things is that even though Sophie gets to the top and she could have stuck it to the witch, she actually was encouraging her, you know, to keep going, keep pushing, which I thought was nice, kind of gets to the heart that Sophie is a good person. That, you know, she might have issues with the witch who actually made her into this old woman. Um, you know, it's not a, uh, doesn't mean that she's going to be a bad person and, and basically just lorded over her that she made it to the top first. Uh, but then, yeah. you know, the witch, uh, Sullivan basically strips the witch of her powers and makes her essentially into, uh, into Sophie, basically. Cause, you know, she makes her, uh, she takes her power away and therefore she becomes the age that she was supposed to be but that the magic had kept from her, you know, kind of getting to that old age. And, uh, and from then on, the character is much more amiable because she's stripped of her power. Uh, you can almost argue she's kind of stripped of her demons as well. Mm -hmm. She's more accepting of her life at that point. Um, even though she tries to get Hal's heart 
later uh, for herself. But um, but what did you think of the storyline of the Witch of the Waste? Um, I, I thought it, it it was very well developed. I think the uh, uh, Studio Ghibli did a great job of making her seem like just this grotesque, horrible thing, and really depicting her over time. Kind of like the understanding in the same way, like when Solomon stripped her of her powers, the she got taken, like she got something encountered with a demon of greed. Mm -hmm. So um, it's kind of that realization is like maybe it's not necessarily by choice that she was the way she was, but this demon that may have done something to her as well. So they did a good job of showing how, like you said, when she got stripped of her powers and kind of stripped of her demons, she was amiable. She was very, she was like, she was being cute with the dog and uh, being friendly with everyone around and whatnot. Kind of seemed like a, you know, the, the grandma of the group, like, kind of snarky but still kind of you know comical and whatnot and having a having some fun with it but um yeah they i think her storyline was really good and like kind of showing what caused her to go down that bad path in the first place when it came to hal's heart and showing her overcoming that obsession with him yeah no i totally agree um yeah, I think that it's like I said, the script I think is pretty good. Um, so I, I guess overall, I'm going to uh, give the script in eighty-five. Um, like I said, I, I had some issues with it, uh, especially the the back end of the movie. But I do think it's a good script for Miyazaki. Uh, what's your grade for it? Uh, I gave it a ninety. Give it a ninety. Okay. All right. And uh, let's move on to talk about um, the uh, voice acting in this, right? So obviously it's not general acting because we've got, uh, you know, it's a little different here. But ultimately, um, what did you think of the voice acting? Uh, I think it it was fantastic. Um, Yeah, everyone did a great job. Even some who aren't as known for voice acting, uh, like Christian Bale, uh, not really used to him and that idea of voice acting for him. Uh, but he did a great job, uh, when he needed to kind of seem callous or overconfident, he did a good job. And when he had needed to show the motion, his, he did a great job with that as well. And, Billy Crystal. <laughs> Billy Crystal basically being Billy Crystal's calcifer, and it was awesome. Um, and yeah, Lauren Bacall and all, uh, crap, was, uh, Blythe Danner yep. and Emily Mortimer. They both, uh, yeah, just everyone did a great job. Um, like, even with the small part he had, Josh Hutcherson did a great job with Markle. Just, yeah, he was a young kid yeah. at that point. <laughs> He's pretty yeah, young. he was very young. It was uh, not like some of the other voice actors, of course, but still, every everyone just did 
great. And it is one of those things like a lot of people underestimate how hard it actually is to do some voice acting because it is harder to get those emotions across without being able to do yourself the the facial expressions, the body language to go along with it because like I'm not saying like regular acting is easier by any stretch, but there are some things that are a lot harder when it comes to voice acting. It can get very difficult to get in that mindset for them. So I think it did a very, they did a very good job of getting to that point. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, for me, I think that the acting, the voice acting was good. Now I, I think, yes, Billy Crystal was was fantastic as Calcifer. I think that Lauren McCall uh, did a great job changing her voice up because if you listen to her, she doesn't sound like, you know, the Witch of the Waste in her voice. So she did a wonderful job. Um, I thought Josh Hutcherson uh, did a really good job. But I think there were times where I wasn't maybe as impressed with Christian Bale as I would have liked. Um, I didn't. I didn't even Emily Mortimer to a certain extent. I don't know if I was if I was as impressed by their expressiveness. There were times where their tones were a bit flat, especially Christian Bale. Uh, so sometimes the emotion, the expression, expressiveness didn't really shine through on the characters as much as it could have been. That being said, uh, it's still it's still a very good you know. Uh, job when it comes to you know combine everybody and all the performances and all the other people that uh are doing some of the smaller voices that you know only in there for you know a bit here and there they do do a great job too so uh overall i'm gonna give the uh voice acting in 88 cool cool yeah i gave it gave it a 90 okay I, like the flatness with Christian Bale sometimes it, it kind of to me goes back to Hal as a a character. Sometimes he he needed to kind of come across as that emotionless because no emotion, uh, no heart. <laughs> Hearts, yeah, yeah, like yeah, so. Yeah. It, to me, it kind of made sense that there were a few of those moments where it's like Christian Bale kind of didn't express too much in it. So that's kind of why I felt that was. Uh, a, a pretty good job for Christian Bale. Cause on it, uh, if there's anyone who does not have a problem expressing emotion or being very out there when it comes to some of his stuff, Christian Bale can very easily get too far with his delivery <laughs> in some of his movies. So like uh, the fact that he was able to make sure he kept that toned down a little bit with this was, I, I personally uh, thought that he, he did a pretty good job there, considering he's not a big voice actor. Okay. Um, all right, so moving on here, uh, let's um, take a look at the, uh, the directing um, for Miyazaki. So, you know, Miyazaki is somebody who, he's a master, all right? He's a master animator. Uh, you know, for some people, uh, they look down upon animation because, well, for a number of reasons. But being an, an animator, being a director 
of the animation and more or less kind of laying out everything is just as hard, I think, in some ways, if not more so. Uh, but for me, Miyazaki just really stands out. Uh, all his movies look amazing, and to a certain extent, I think they've only become more amazing as the years have gone by, as he's you know, managed to master his craft and uh, create, I think, well, I mean, with a bigger budget and more animators mm-hmm. and everything, it's allowed him to, to do more. And you could argue that with Miyazaki, I mean, he's been doing this for years, but this is right in the middle of, I think, the sweet spot of his his career. Uh, yeah. And it shows. Uh, there's a great uh, there's great composition uh, with his uh, shot selection when it comes to animating, you know, and he knows how to do action scenes and to to u- really utilize that canvas. Um, in the animation and he's just phenomenal. He's a great director. It's not just the stories and it's not just the scripts and and it's really everything that makes Miyazaki such a great director. It's, it's not one thing. It's many things. It's why he's so celebrated. It's why he possibly is the greatest living animator um, or maybe the greatest animator of all time. So yeah, I, I really couldn't find anything in this movie, there's wide panoramic shots um, of you know House Castle walking across the landscape. Um, there's breathtaking scenes where you know How is is flying through the air as as a um, a winged demon and and everything in between. So, in the animation is just superb. The animation is Miyazaki. And it means it's basically perfect. So, uh, directing wise, I gave him a ninety-four. Nice, nice. Yeah, um, he, yeah, he's just fantastic. He he has there's there's no way somebody can look at his movies and not see a certain style and know that it's him. Like he just, he has that uniqueness about him. He has just a certain thing. He always brings to this kind of genre and this kind of movie and and this animation. And it's the, the fact that he does it by hand and anyone who wants to say animation is a subpar, or less than equal to other cinema. To, I want you to sit down and you try and draw some of this stuff out. And I want to see how long it takes you to even have something that looks a tenth of a tenth as good. Because I'm going to tell you right now, the fact that he's able to do that. And for like the past, I think so he's been blind in one eye for how long? Like, he, the the man is just fantastic with everything he brings to the table, uh, directing, script, animation, artwork, everything like that. And, and it's really cool and unique to see what his childhood and what his personal life he brings to the, to his artwork. Uh, like the, the fact that his father was a, 
pilot and in the war Mm -hmm. and uh seeing all of these things brought to his animation and how there's so much war and influence and how he hates that premise of war and everything about it it just is really unique to him and he does such a great job uh doing everything he does and i'm in the same boat as you on score wise i gave him a 94 okay excellent yeah that's good i mean he definitely deserves it um all right so moving on here uh obviously you know with uh something like this you're not going to to have uh special effects or anything this is an animated movie so uh basically it's an na for that uh for that grade but editing and pacing, that's definitely something that we could talk about. Uh, this is obviously, you know, given what we were talking about earlier, I have a problem with the the pacing of this movie, um, and it goes hand in hand with the editing. I, I still think the back end is a real problem for me. It's where, I mean, who knows? Maybe that was planned out from the beginning. I just have a hard time believing it. I, I feel like it was got to a point where they simply cut out what they didn't need or well, what they felt they didn't need in order to get to uh, a two hour runtime. And if they would have let that breathe a little more, that that back end of the movie really lengthened and stretched that out a bit. I feel like, you know, another 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes would have allowed that. Um, So, you know, for me, while I don't think it's, it's terrible, I don't, I don't think that it, the uh, pacing really is as good as, say, Spirited Away or some other or Ponyo or anything like that, where I feel like the story was exactly as long as it needed to be. No more, no less. And unfortunately, with this, there appears to be um, you know, a need for more story, but unfortunately, there's less. So I'm going to give it an 84. Okay. Um, yeah, like with some of that stuff, like I know, uh, we kind of discuss a little bit and whatnot the, yeah, like I would have loved to have some, some more elaboration on some of the stuff at the end, uh, just because like, it would be nice to know <clears throat> and have a little bit more of an impact on, uh, the prince being missing and whatnot and kind of make it feel like it's a big deal that he came back. Like it, it kind of felt, I wouldn't say throwaway, but it kind of felt uh, less impactful than it could have been uh, with him coming back. Even like I get, it's not, he's not important. The important part of the story, it's about Sophie and how, but um, it, I, I agree. It could have been some of the stuff. At the end was rushed a little, but still, overall, I think uh, did a did a really good job uh, pacing and editing wise. Um, so I'd give it an eighty eight. Okay. And uh, rewatchability. So for me, I'm gonna give it a ninety. Uh, because look for for any issues that I may have with this movie. It's still a Miyazaki film, you know, which which means you're gonna find you know endless imagination, 
you're going to uh, encounter characters who are just, you know, wonderful to to behold, you know, you're going to encounter villains which are are sometimes subverted and turn out to be not the villains that you thought they were going to be. Those are all Miyazaki strengths. And you know, he's for me he's a a man who doesn't really have an equal in a lot of ways. You know, and don't get me wrong, I love, you know, there's a lot of great computer animated movies out there. And the work and the time and the effort that gets put into those is it's a lot. I mean, obviously if you've watched um you know, Wally or something, I mean that's a fantastic movie. And I don't know that anybody could really uh win an argument with me that it's not. But but um but Miyazaki is just he's just different all right and uh, i think you'll you'll probably be uh, someone who agrees if you've seen more than one Miyazaki movie that his stuff is just it's different and i think we can see the labor of love we can see the hard work because this is traditional animation so we know how much time, or at least we have a good idea, a better idea of how much time goes into putting this together as, say, compared with, you know, a computer animated movie from Pixar, which I know takes a lot of time, but you can see the effort to make everything stand out and to pop on, you know, screen when it has to be animated by hand. So, yeah, yeah for me... Yeah, it's definitely um, he's definitely great. So rewatchability is high, partly because this is a really good movie. The other thing is, is because it's Miyazaki. Yeah, uh, yeah, um, he he is just fantastic. I got a ninety-two for rewatchability, and yeah, he just the fact that <clears throat> it's it's a big deal that he's coming back again in at the age that he is at like the fact that it's his movies are an event like when there's anything that comes out that's studio ghibli it's so like it doesn't even have to be that big when it comes to advertising it's just when that gets known and found out it spreads like wildfire amongst people and there's something to be said for that. The fact that this 90 some year old man is still doing this hand done animation and artwork and isn't doing it just, yeah, he's probably made has made so much money that he can afford to not care about the money. But the fact that it, it's not that he's just, phoning it in he he is doing and it is a labor of love for him and every single bit of his work has his feel to it you you can tell his work in a lineup amongst any other work just by like you can take everything that would make it known uh, name wise of his and just be able to pull it out and know that it's a Miyazaki thing. Um, yeah, he's, he's just great. 
not much more can be said about how <laughs> our opinions on Miyazaki, of course. Uh, and he just, he has a way of making it also just fun movies and having some lighthearted moments, even though they have some very big thematic, uh, moments in his movies, like his issues with war and how he will always have some kind of reference to the negatives of war and all of those kind of aspects, but he still is able to, bring that in like calcifer in this was just fantastically well done and great at bringing some lightheartedness to what could have been a very dour and serious movie no i agree definitely um totally uh all things that really stand out here so um all right so let's get down to uh adding up the grades here so uh jacob your grades came out to a 90 overall score. Mine came out to an 88. So uh, not that far apart here. Overall, Freaking Geek score is an 89. So the averaged out scores uh, for the script are an 87. The uh, acting gets an 89. Directing by Miyazaki gets a 94. And uh, the editing and pacing gets an 86. Uh, rewatchability is a 91, although we don't factor that into the score anymore. Uh, but uh, tells you just how much Miyazaki's films are beloved in that we love watching them and um, they have a high rewatchability factor because they are so much fun and a joy to watch. So, yep, again, overall grade for this is an 89. So, yeah, good score. For sure. So um, anybody that wants to review any of these movies like we do, you just go to freakinggeeks.com. You can... Uh, go to the page for this episode, and in the comment section, you can you know put your name if you'd like, and you have the ability to, like we do, grade the movies from a scale of uh, zero to a hundred on, you know, script, acting, directing, pacing, rewatchability, and uh, so that gives you the ability to have your own input as to you know, how you would grade these movies according to the same criteria. So uh, go ahead and check that out. And if you'd also like to get a hold of us, you can either contact us through our contact form on the website, or you can send your feedback to freakinggeeksmedia at gmail.com. So uh, go ahead and do that if you'd like, and we hope to hear from you. But that's it for the Freaking Geeks podcast. So thanks for listening. And thank you, Jacob, for joining me on this episode. Thanks for having me. All right, everyone. We'll see you next time on the Freaking Geeks podcast. Thanks for listening to the Freaking Geeks podcast. Be sure to visit FreakingGeeks.com as well as our Patreon page at Patreon.com slash Freaking Geeks for more great content. Also, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes. Trust us, it really helps. Now, if you'd like to write into the podcast and share your thoughts and ask questions, you can do so by sending your email to freakinggeeksmedia at gmail.com. You can contact Michael on Twitter using at Michael underscore Lanage. You can contact Sarah on Twitter using at Labyrinth Rose or at Freak Geeks.
Intro music for this episode is Danger Storm by Kevin MacLeod, which can be found at incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. Outro music is Nowhere Land by Kevin MacLeod, which can be found at incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. You can also find the attribution in the episode description as well.